Hello. Hello again. You all set? Yes. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Craft Business Life Podcast. My name is Lee Solomon. This is a podcast about actors and sometimes other people as well, but mostly actors and about the real nuts and bolts of how they do what they do and how you pursue a career in this crazy field and balance it with the rest of your life and everything else about that. And uh, my guest today has a very particularly interesting uh, journey, which I'm excited to talk with her about because she came here from France uh, to study acting and to be an actor. And now she's uh, working on that as well as dealing with the various uh, complications with needing a visa to be here and all that, which we've talked to a couple of other guests about, a couple of guests from uh, Canada. But um, this will be uh, another very uh, informative uh, discussion. And hopefully if anybody out there who's either thinking about coming here from another country or is here from another country and dealing with similar things, um, she will hopefully have some insights and uh, and uh, advice and whatever for you. So. Again, please correct me and forgive me if I'm pronouncing this wrong, but my guest is Joy Solomon Corlove. That's perfect. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, so why don't we start with, as I was just alluding to, Anita, why don't you explain a little more specifically how you ended up in New York from France and why you decided to come here and what your sort of goal is at this point. Yeah, definitely. So I was actually born and raised in Paris, France, but I was raised bilingual, so French and English. So I attended like international schools around Paris and such. And I decided I want to be an actor at 13. So I joined these private conservatories around Paris and then by, I guess, 20 or 21, I thought, huh, I speak English the way I do. Why don't I try it out in English? So then I went to a specific, like, European school where they trained us uh, for, like, the big English and American schools to audition and such. And I got into the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. And so that's how I ended up in New York in 2016. And I graduated from it uh, April 2018, so a year ago, yeah. So you didn't necessarily originally have a plan to end up in New York, but it's just that when this opportunity with the school came along, you thought it was a good idea? Yeah, sort of. I mean, it had kind of always been a dream of mine to come to New York and act, but it seemed so distant, you know, and so impossible and so hard, so complicated to organize, not just visa-wise, but financially, you know, moving 3,000 miles away. But I thought I'd give it a shot, and because Ada auditions internationally, it wasn't hard for me to come to an audition because it was in London, so all I had to do was hop a train. I didn't have to go all the way to the USA for an audition. Sure, absolutely. Um, cool, so why don't you break that down a little bit more so people understand. I know it's very complicated, but just give kind of the basic bullet points of the visa process and how it worked for you being a student and how it works now and, and where you're at with all that. Oh, okay, definitely. So basically, once you receive admission, let's say from a school in the U.S., you go to the embassy, 
uh, the American embassy and you apply for what they call an F1 student visa. And so if you have all the in order, the financial details, proof you can, you know, pay for tuition, uh, no criminal record, all of that stuff, they'll give you an F1 visa. So once you get the F1 visa, you can come and attend American schools and you'll have a special paper called an I-20 and the I-20 is there to say I am still in that school and I am still like under supervision, you know, in the United States. So every time, by the way, you leave the country, you have to get a signature from a counselor from your school on your I-20 to re-enter the territory because they don't want you to be, you know, wandering about without supervision. Hmm. And like once you graduate, the United States government offers you the opportunity to do something I'm doing right now, which is called optional practical training. And that's one year long. And it's like an extension of your F-1 visa. So it's a work authorization on top of it. So they give you one year in the country after graduation. And there you're allowed to try and start building a career. So that means you can only work in the field that you graduated in. And for me, that's performing arts. So I can only have jobs that are related to that field. And now I'm applying for what you call an O-1 visa, which is an alien of extraordinary ability visa. And it was created because so many people want to come to the U.S. with all the job opportunities, both artists, engineers, scientists, you name it. And you have to prove uh, through matters of references, recommendations, awards and such that you are an alien of extraordinary ability and can, you know, make it, so to speak, in the U.S. Yeah, so, you know, it's very, no, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, obviously, you know, people like myself who have always lived here, you know, never had to deal with this sort of thing. So it, it's clearly uh, very challenging. Um, it's interesting for a couple of reasons, you know, this idea of, you know, having an extraordinary ability, as they put it, you know, how you sort of prove that or quantify that or who gets to make that call you know, I'm sure is one, one complicating factor. Do you know, can you explain a little bit about how you go about, you know, trying to make your case for that and, and who decides and how all that works? Yeah. So basically what they want is to see a portfolio. If you're going for an artist visa, like I am that special part of the O one one for the artist, the portfolio that you will have pictures of you performing, you will have the playbills of any performance, regardless of where they took place. You know, you will have references from professionals in the industry saying that they think you have extraordinary ability and thus deserve to be recognized that way. Um, you know, they don't have digital versions yet, so for an actor, it proves complicated because what you end up doing is screenshotting your face on YouTube or any video you may have appeared on on any platform. That's also a very important part of proof. Um, and awards as well. If you any kind of award, I received a scholarship, for example, for merit for ADA. That goes into it definitely. So it is very difficult. So that's why I have a lawyer who specialized in that. And I also went through an agency called Visa Pack. And they're amazing because for quite a small price, they help you build that portfolio. And they're all industry professionals who've gone through that. And they help you translate that whole legal jargon and the requirements of USCIS, which may seem kind of daunting at first. And they kind of do a step-by-step breakdown for you. Great, and we'll post the link to that and anything else we refer to during the podcast in the episode notes in case people are looking for it. Um, that's great that there's a resource like that. You know, you also told me when we met that, you know, as you mentioned, you do have to work with this lawyer, and obviously that 
uh, has, I think, considerable cost attached to it just to have the lawyer work on this for you. Um, you know, so it's not easy. And, um, speaking of money, you know, again, you mentioned this before and we talked about it a little bit too in the past. Um, you know, and this, this came up with my other international guests as well. This idea that you can't even get a day job or a survival job if it's not considered related to what you're trying to do. And I don't know, man, it, to me, you know, from my naive perspective, it, it seems a little nuts that if they're going to let you be here, they should also let you work and make money, you know, at a day job, especially since, you know, you're here at considerable cost in the first place. You know, it just seems backwards to me. Yeah, and I think it's, I mean, I don't know if backwards uh, is the word I would use, but there's also that idea that every country has these kind of restrictions. But from my perspective as a privileged European citizen, that's true that I completely forgot the idea of visas and such because, you know, as a European Union citizen, you can, like, live in 20-plus countries without ever showing your passport. Yeah. That's fascinating. I could live in Spain. I could live in Sweden. I could live in England. Like, well, for the time being, that is. Um, But... You find ways, and I have to say that's the thing about the U.S. is this resourcefulness I found in American citizens and people who've lived here for a very long time is that you do find find ways. It's very scary at first. I was like, how am I going to find a day job in the performing arts, you know? Right. But I did find ways, you know, uh, that I could both use what I'd learned in the U.S. and my ability with languages, for example, working as a tour guide for a big theater scripted part that works, you know, for the requirements, and that means that I'm a performer, so to speak, for that company. But it it was very hard at first, and I know that a lot of people struggle with it. Absolutely. And so, if you don't mind my asking, how old were you when you first came here and started at the American Academy? Oh, uh, I was 22. Okay. Yes, I was 22. (laughs) That took me a while. So, um, and what was your plan or your situation financially at that point? Did you have loans for the school or did you have, were you able to pay for that or how did that work for you? Uh, Well, the situation was complicated, I won't lie. Um, I had a loan. I got a big loan from a French bank, which proved as well difficult because, you know, we don't have government loans as much in France because most of your studies are free. I see. Right. Uh, yeah, so then, you know, going up to a bank and being like, hi, I need 40 grand for an acting school, of which I probably won't get a job right out of to pay back that loan. Yeah. So I was very lucky to have a really nice banker. It's the first time I've met a nice banker, to be honest, and she really much believed in my dream and was very admirative of my ambition. So she worked really hard to get me that loan, but it took a couple of months, I have to say, of sure. pushing and pushing and pushing. Sure. But no, I mean, I definitely... I was privileged in France, but from that point of view, I could not afford studying in the United States. If you're an international like me, studying in the United States without loans, then you are definitely extremely privileged. Like, that's just the fact. Sure. Sure, yeah. And um, in general, you know, what would you say about, you know, you know, let's say you weren't here. Um, or you did have to go back at some point, which obviously I hope that doesn't happen to you. But, you know, if you were back in, in Paris or anywhere in Europe, as you said, you know, 
do you think pursuing an acting career over there would be a very different uh, scenario? Or I definitely do think it'd be very different. The French industry is a little harder to access in a sense. You know, we don't have necessarily open calls. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very just daunting. I have friends who we graduated from the conservatory together about six years ago, and I've gotten more work than they have in the space of a year than they have in like six years. And it's got nothing to do with their talent. It's just got to do with how do you reach agents? How do you reach casting directors? There, you know, there are no showcases or, the, uh, you know, I'm part of something called the Actors Project in New York City, which helps us showcase our talents and invites tons and tons of agents and such to come and see us. Like, that doesn't happen in France. Nice. So the working actor friends I have were in a sense, discovered in the more traditional sense from back in the 70s, you know, I was discovered on the street, or by luck, I was, there's less of a business side to it, I would say. You know, you don't see yourself as a business person, as an actor in France. I understand. Like you don't showcase or promote yourself in the same way. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I don't know if there's any truth to this, but some common wisdom, you know, about some of the differences between America and Europe traditionally and perhaps even still might say that there, maybe one of the reasons for that is that over there the arts are, are more respected and maybe subsidized a little more. Do you think there's any truth to that or no? I don't know about respected. Is it a little more elitist or I don't, I don't know if that's the right word to use, but yeah, definitely it's like on a pedestal. You know, and in every, and it is subsidized yeah. for sure. Like uh, going to see a play in Paris is nowhere near the cost as it is right. in New York. But that's just because national theaters and regional theaters receive money from the government. So that's a, that is a great part of France and European countries on that level. You know. Yeah. But the return of that is that it's a very closed off world that's really hard to access. Right. And then, how is it for you now, strategically, when you're auditioning? Because I assume your visa information and status is on your resume, so people know your situation. And then, obviously, actors here, you know, who are American or anybody, you know, they're, they're, they may be auditioning for non-union or union, and obviously there are gigs that are unpaid as opposed to paid and everything else. You know, does your situation change any of that for you, or does it make you sort of more focused that you need to only look at paid work, or how is all that in your situation? Well, I don't only look for paid work because of also the portfolio. You know, I was looking for quality work and things that were interesting and that could prove that extraordinary ability sure. that they, immigration is looking for. So paid work was not really necessary on mm -hmm. that level. Mm -hmm. um, but then, for example, as an audition, I don't tend to say I'm French. And there are two reasons for that. First of all, they're going to, they don't tend to pay attention as much if they think you're foreign. So they're going to listen to you and try to figure out if you have an accent or not. That's like just human nature. Right. You know, oh, yes. does she have a little bit of an accent? And then B, it's because it scares people off because they're like, is she going to ask me to sponsor her? Is she going to have to be kicked out of the country in the next six months? Uh, Which see? is a fair question to have, of course. Sure. Uh, no, but I'm so far with the OPT requirements, I've never had to show anything. You know, I have an SSN, I have a work authorization, so everything I've done is, you know, legal and, you know, reported on my tax filings and such, right? Yeah. 
but yeah, no, purely from that perspective, I don't necessarily tend to say I'm French, unless I think it could give me a certain angle, because I know that French people are seen a certain way in the U.S. Interesting, right, sure, yeah. Um, very interesting, wow, yeah. It's tough, man, it's not easy. Um, so, let's go back now, if we can, through your upbringing over there and everything else that led up to this, and then we'll get to, we'll come back around to the present and, and your experiences here so far. So, you were born and raised in Paris? Yes, very much in Paris. And again, I'm not, I've, I've actually never been there, regrettably, but, you know, are, are we talking about in the actual city of Paris itself, or somewhere near there? Oh, no. I was raised in the seventh quarter. You know, Paris has 20 quarters. Okay. Uh, and I, mine was the seventh, which is basically by the river, I would say southwest of Paris. It's between the Eiffel Tower and Parliament. Wow. So right there. But yeah, no, I was very, uh, I was very privileged to have the upbringing I did. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about that because, you know, anything that is our own experience or what we're used to, you know, may not seem that unique to us or whatever, but but what was growing up there like and, and what was your family like? You know, give us a little bit of, of that. Well, definitely. I mean, growing up in Paris, you kind of forget that you're in Paris. Right. And i often reminded of that because I see the look on people's faces when I tell them, first of all, where I'm from and, like, where in Paris I was raised, right? Mm -hmm. Like, the street I grew up in, which is a boulevard, is featured on most, you know, postcards and even in certain films. Like, it's just picturesque Paris. Yeah. That, you know, Paris that everybody has in their head when they think of Paris. So I often forgot that uh, because I was privileged. You know, you're blinded by that. And, um, I mean, I have to say I had a pretty traditional for an untraditional family <laughs> upbringing, uh, Catholic French, you know, with a Jewish father, which complicated things, hence the Salomon and the last name. Oh, uh, but he was obviously non-practicing because he married a Goyesha. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> but we were raised Catholic, and I did attend Catholic school for about five years in between international schools, which that proved to be a fun experience of a short tomboy with a Jewish name. Mm -hmm. uh, you know. And, but my, you know, my mother was an opera singer. My father had been a dancer. And now oh. he's a radiologist and he's a lawyer. So they also had very unconditional, uh, uh, unconventional, excuse me, paths. Yeah. So my they transmitted that to their kids. Right. But so they're, they, so, but you definitely had artistic background in your family. So there you go. And, oh, yeah. Um, we all started music very young as well. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, so, so, uh, do you have siblings then? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I have two sisters, uh, both older. I'm the baby of the family. I have a sister who is a lawyer in London. And, and I have a sister who's an opera singer in Canada. Oh, wow. Fantastic. And so you said you guys all, you and your sisters all started music early in life. What was that? What kind, what do you mean by that? Well, I started the guitar, the classical guitar at five, and the cello at eight. Oh, great. Yeah, we really, really had to do classical music. Like, by, I mean, I had never really heard contemporary music up until the age of eight or nine. Mm hmm So I kind of had that outside thing going on. That's nerdy. Fantastic. Very nerdy family. I won't lie. No, I love it. Now, and, uh, you know, that's a great thing, and it's too bad more, you know, more families and more kids don't don't put a value on that stuff early. Um, 
So, you know, growing up and living in the city of Paris, you know, obviously European cities sort of culturally and stylistically may be very different from, say, New York. But I assume overall it was, you know, similar city life just in terms of it's crowded and it's a city, right? I mean, what, what's it really like living day to day in Paris? So that's the thing. You kind of have to, like, navigate the swarm of tourists. I mean, it's been for decades, like, one of the most visited cities in the world, if not the most. Yeah. Um, so you kind of get used to uh, walking into people's pictures and such because you can't stop because you have to get to point A from point B, kind of like in New York. That's what I said. Honestly, I thought the same thing when I first moved here. I was like, I was raised bilingual. All my friends are American. It's not going to be a culture clash, right? It was a much bigger culture clash than I thought. And I, you know, New York, make, well, when I come back to Paris, whenever I get to visit, I don't feel like the countryside in comparison because it's just so much calmer. So uh, it's funny you said because I was going to ask a question kind of along those lines, which is, I don't know if, if you mean calmer like, like, um, you know, like the actual place or like the, the culture and the people and the way they act. Because I was going to say the the sort of stereotype that we hear is like in Europe and places like Paris, like people are more relaxed. They take leisure more seriously. They don't get their coffee to go. They sit in cafes and just enjoy it, you know, and obviously people work and people are busy. That's, you know, let's not be too uh, exaggerating, but do you think there's truth to that idea? Oh, completely. I mean, you, you can stay hours in a cafe in Paris without ever anybody showing you a check. Like, I was very shocked when I first started, you know, going out in New York City and grabbing a drink from my friends, and immediately, you know, like, 20 minutes later, the check would be on the table. <laughs> right. That, that thing of, like, I'm like, well, I'm not done here. And I get it, because, you know, they're just working with the city's energy, and they have to go quick, quick, quick. But in Paris, you, yeah, you can definitely walk around Paris and do nothing for a whole day. It's, there's all, you know, the social things going with that, like paid vacation, right. universal health care. Right. People are a little calmer about it. But I would have to say Paris is definitely very busy. Yeah. And a bit cutthroat like New York can be. But in comparison, it's just so much calmer. And there's no honking. Honking is illegal in Paris, right? New <laughs> York just feels very noisy for me. Oh, my God, yes. Uh, very cool, very cool. All right, so you're growing up, you're doing the music thing, and then you said you discovered acting pretty early as well. When and how did that happen? I think I decided I wanted to be a performer around the age of, like, eight. Uh, it took me a lot to get to, you know, training, but, like, I remember the first play I remember seeing. I was, like, seven or eight, and it was Antigone. Mm. So the version by Jean Admouille was a French playwright, and this is a post-World War II version, so like a modern version of the tragedy, but, you know, same story. Yeah. And my mother had taken my sisters to see it, and I was very upset because I hadn't been involved. Uh-huh. I'm pretty sure, well, that's what my mother says. Uh, I don't remember how I got to see it, but like she took me again because apparently I had a tantrum because I had been excluded from an activity right. because she considered Antigone was a little bit much for an eight-year-old. Sure, yeah. Which, which it is, in fact, when you think about it. Yeah. Um, so she took me back, and I saw it, and I remember this, like, I, I remember it so clearly, and I was just so fascinated by it. And, you know, specifically, I, this is my, you know, one of my 
biggest memories about it is that my mother had told me about the tragedy and how it happened in ancient Greece and everything, you know, told me the story before we went. And then the guards show up and they were holding laptops. Right. And I was so shocked. And that's the only thing I could focus on because I was like, wait, but this is ancient Greece. They didn't have laptops yet. I mean, I couldn't exactly understand modernized, you know, settings and pornography. I was seven. Um, But yeah, that's when I really, I don't know why, this fascination with the magic they could create on stage. The lighting and the actress, who's very famous French actress called Barbara Schultz, that was kind of like her big, uh, big role, like her breakout role. Mm. And so that kind of stayed in my mind for a while, but I never really paid much attention to it. And then at 13, I thought, hey, there's this conservatory, the oldest conservatory in Paris, very traditional, very old French acting style. And they had these, you know, training for juniors. And I asked my mother and she said, yes, definitely go audition. So I auditioned and I got in and I stayed there for five years. And so this was starting at what age? At 13. And is this along with regular school or in place of regular school? Along with regular school. France doesn't have these, like, high school programs. Right, okay. Uh, You don't do acting in high school in France. You have to go to a specific conservatory. So on top of the French uh, system, I had to add conservatory. Great. And what was the training at that point like for you? Did you did you take to it right away? Oh, I did. It was so much fun. And the French start training quite young on acting-wise. You know, 13 is quite young. And they train you specifically with vaudeville. You start out with comedy, so classical comedy or vaudeville, which is, you know, traditionally Parisian vaudeville, which is highly inappropriate for teenagers when you think about the subject. Hmm. But it's uh, definitely very... Uh, very fun. So they would train us with, you know, short scenes, kind of like acting 101. And obviously technical components and the physicality of comedy and a lot of comedia de la fe as well, because that's in our tradition, you know, it was not far. Yep. And clowning is also a big part of it. So we don't have like improv, like you guys have like these improv classes around New York. Yeah. This is sort of our form of improv. Yeah. So street comedy, clowning and comedia. Well, it's very interesting because, you know, we talk about, obviously, the American acting, teaching methods, and and then, of course, uh, you know, there, there's a whole British uh, culture of that that's a little mm-hmm. different. But uh, interesting that something I wouldn't have thought of, and now that you say it, I, I realize, of course, you know, you realize those traditions, but that in France, they really start with the physicality and the the, that that type of, uh, of of comedy and so forth. Um, so you guys aren't talking about you know internal emotional stuff. You're actually talking about physical performance. Yeah. So that's very that's a very different approach than than I think what we're used to over here. So that's very interesting. Definitely, and it's I think it's often a kind of a shocking acting form to certain Americans because, for example, the fourth wall does not exist for French people. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm sure it's applied around modern theater, right, all over France, but in training, most often in the nine years I trained in Paris, it was like, there is no such thing as the fourth wall, it's American bullshit, <laughs> um, the audience is there, enjoy the audience, you know, they're kind of like audience whores, like French actors love the audience, and the performers as well, and just the way you look at our comedy, it makes sense, because we're constantly turning to the audience, at least especially the servants, you know, uh, turning to the audience and kind of like giving them a nudge, being like, hey, did you see that? He's an idiot, right? 
that's also in all of our comedy, vaudeville as well as uh, well, yeah, he's kind of the founding father of yep. theater in a way. Yep, yep. Well, yeah, it's amazing. Again, it's sadly we don't really think about that over here, but yeah, a whole different, whole different approach there in France. Very, that's excuse me, that's great. Um, cool. And what else? What else did you learn during those high school years? Well, I mean, I kind of also learned my type in a way for that. Well, French type because I think every culture has their different types and you'll fit into one type but not into another in a whole other country which is happening to me right now mm -hmm. uh, I discovered my type and kind of like my love for classical comedy and the servants you know who often don't necessarily have the bigger parts but they do drive the story forward with all of their jokes and their you know they're always um, deceiving people to get to their end Yes. So that was something I realized how to establish a relationship with an audience, get them on your side, and get them in a way to participate in your deceit. Kind of like how Richard III is always giving aside and saying, hey, I'm right, mm -hmm. and they're wrong, don't you think? Mm-hmm. Yep. So getting them on your side and also working from your face, even though you might be in a 700-seat theater, the audience still has to feel that something is going on in your face, if that makes sense. Of course, yeah. So how to physicalize a thought, yeah. Yeah. So you guys are doing this training from the age of about 13 to about 18 or whatever, and you're, mm -hmm. you're finishing up the equivalent of regular high school as well. Um, yeah. And then, you know, you know, what, what was the plan? I mean, did, did a lot of your fellow students feel that, like, at 18 they were really going to pursue acting there in Paris, or... You know, what were you guys thinking at that time? Yeah, so for most of us, it was definitely a, a career choice because uh, French high school has classes from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m., oh. 9 a.m., 5 p.m. Like, it's a lot of hours that you put it in French yeah. high school. Yeah. So to add on the conservatory to that, it meant really was dedicated. You know, it wasn't just like an after-school activity because those don't really exist in France given our you know, our schedule. Interesting. From a very young age. Yeah. So everybody was very dedicated, and these schools are what we see as prep schools because we have one conservatory, which is kind of the equivalent of the big schools around English world, you know, RADA uh, and such, mm -hmm. and it's called Le Conservatoire National, so it's the National Superior Conservatory for Dramatic Arts, and that's like the big deal, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody wants to be a part of it. There's 30 spots and about 1,500 candidates every year uh, it's very, very difficult, and you can only audition if you have a certificate from one of these conservatories, like prep conservatories, saying they have specifically prepared for this audition, and they only recognize a couple of schools around France. So the whole thing is a very old-fashioned system. Right. It's not an open call or an open audition. Right. But, it's, first of all, it's free. <laughs> so if you attend, it's free. So I kind of came to that crossing point where... After graduating high school, I joined another conservatory in France, in Paris, uh, which is a European conservatory, so they were very famous for getting a lot of people in on a yearly basis to the National Conservatory, and also for training people for American and English schools, and getting them in into these schools as well. So I specifically chose that school called Le Cours Florent for that reason, and I kind of came to a cross point of around 1920 where I was like, do I really want to go to the conservatory, like in Paris, the national one? Mm -hmm. And then I thought, mm, I don't know. 
And so I decided I maybe my heart wanted to go somewhere else. And that's how you ended up thinking about New York. Yeah, that's how it came back to me. Because that dream I'd had when I was 13, 14, thinking I'll go to New York and be an actor. But then I kind of gave it up because of the price and because of the hours I had put into the French Conservatory already and thinking this is what I want to do. And then suddenly when I realized maybe that's not fit for me and maybe I'm not fit for them, the National Superior Conservatory, mm-hmm. maybe I should go look elsewhere. And that's when New York came back into play. And, you know, what you were saying about the French system with the schools and everything, that brings up another good point, you know, that, that, that I, I'm very interested in, which is, you know, and, and London is usually used as the example for this, but you can use France as well, um, which is that, you know, this idea that training uh, for actors there is taken very, very seriously um, and that, you know, actors really um, see it as a craft that you really have to study and work hard at and all the different elements of it. Mm-hmm. So that's that's great. Um, and so, um, so we should back up just a little, just to clarify for people, um, because, you know, uh, growing up initially, even when you were younger, um, the reason you don't, you know, I mean, you can do a French accent when you want to, but you, you sound, you don't sound like it normally, as you said, uh, and you told me that's because you grew up in like an international community, an international school, right? Yeah. So, okay, why don't I mean, you tell us a little bit and more? And my mother as well. What's that? Uh, I have, and my mother as well. So, my mother decided to only speak English to her kids, which is a strange decision okay. because she's French. Right. Uh, but she speaks many languages, a couple of languages fluently, and she just chose English. And she speaks English the way I do. Right. So, it is my mother tongue. But, like, unlike a lot of the French kids in my high school, my international high school, the French kids who had French parents, they spoke fluent English, but they didn't have the accent I did, and they certainly didn't speak it at home. Right? The ones who spoke English like I did were binationals, or they'd lived in the U.S. or in England, you know. They had that. For me, it was very strange because it was like, you've never lived in the U.S. or in England, yet you speak like an American. Right. So there was like, and it just got more and more American as I was more and more, you know, uh, surrounded by Americans. Sure. And now that I'm in New York, it's starting to get a little bit New York, too. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, But again, as an actor, it's good to have all these diverse, you know, things coming at you so you can use them. So, um, cool. So then you end up auditioning for and getting into the American Academy of Dramatic Arts here in New York. And you you get your loan and you come over here. Um, You know... Am I miss so so basically if I'm if I understand you correctly, you're at the, the high school level conservatory till about eighteen and then from eighteen mm-hmm. to twenty two you were at the other French conservatory before you came here? Yep. Okay. And um so you get to New York, you start studying at um American Academy of Dramatic Arts, which is a, a pretty popular school here as well. Um so what's it like there for you initially, you know, what's the training like, how different is it, you know, what was that first semester like for you? Well, it was amazing, it was kind of like, a, well, it was a dream come true because finally I got to only do 
asking because you see I didn't say that prior to this because it would have made the whole story even more complicated than it is. But as I was attending that four-year conservatory back in Paris, the one who trained me to get an ADA, mm-hmm. I was also getting a bachelor's in Germanic linguistics. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I basically had, like, class from 8 to 11 p.m. most days ah. because I was doing, you know, half and half. Right. Uh, so coming to Ada, where it was, you know, like, 8 to 9 p.m. of just acting and all the different subjects of acting, movement, voice, film, um, it definitely was a dream come true. But it was also very different for me because there were some people at Ada who had... Um, uh, who had high school training of acting and some people who were much older, you know, and I was in that middle branch of like young, but not as young as the rest, but not as old as certain people. So I had some experience, but not all the experience. So I was kind of torn between, am I going to be friends with the 18 year olds or am I going to be friends with the 26 year olds? Right. And when, how did that end up playing out for you? Who'd, who'd you end up being friends with? Well, just about anyone, really, because, I mean, you notice, which is kind of great about acting conservatories, is that people have a certain level of maturity, I find, you know. Hopefully, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ho- hopefully, yeah. You still always find a couple of those who manage to, you know, not attend class and not do the assignments when it's like, how much are you paying for this again? Yeah. You know, <laughs> you're not getting a law or business degree here, so you better work hard at it. Right. Um and I met some really wonderful people, and there's a big international community as well at Ada, so you don't feel alone. That's great. I was definitely the only French girl there. <laughs> but, uh... So, speaking of school, going back a little bit again, your decision to take regular university in Germanic languages, um, you know, before you before you went before you came over, um, was that you know, something you wanted to do? Did your family, you know, want you to go to regular college? Or what was the reason for that? It was definitely a bit of both. I think I was very influenced by my parents who, as I said, you know, were artists and then became more like, you know, normal job, doctor, lawyer. Uh, But there was also my desire. I'm somebody who can be very academic and I really enjoyed research Mm. and all those things. So I did have a passion for language as well. So I thought, hey, it could only help me. You know, and as you said before, how artists in France are taken very seriously, artists are also seen in France as intellectuals. Yeah. You know, so that can only add to your thing. I wasn't the only one doing uh, double degree, so to speak, in the conservatory, right? A lot of my friends were getting BAs in theater and film and history and linguistics so it it wasn't strange to do that now it was a lot of work but it's definitely we think basically an artist should be fed artistically but also should feed themselves intellectually you know you should be a reader you should be a writer you should be somebody who likes research and who likes other things than acting oh absolutely i mean that's you know that helps in every way and plus you know just in general the more things you have in your life and your awareness and your experience uh, the more you have to draw from as an artist anyway um, so and in general it sounds like the answer is yes but have your parents always been supportive of you wanting to be an actor 
Oh, definitely. They're very, I'm very fortunate because they're very proud and they're very supportive yeah. of uh, us wanting to pursue artistic careers. They're also very aware, you know, having done it, that it's very hard. Right. Um, so you, at the same time, you get that positive thing of them, you know, being so proud, but also the negative of them knowing just how difficult it is. So they worry. And I, I don't want them to worry, but their parents are going to worry anyways. Sure. But no, it's very helpful to have parents who are proud of that because it's definitely not common. Yeah, it can be tough. Yeah. Um, great. So, so at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts here in New York, um, you know, you had all this training in France first. Um, mm-hmm. now you get here. You know, did you find the actual content of the training very, very different from what you were used to? Yeah, definitely. Um, what were some of the new things that came up here that you didn't, you weren't exposed to back in France? Well, I mentioned that before, but there was the whole fourth wall work. Yep. First of all, that was very strange for me, but also yep. super helpful as well. That's what made me realize how some American plays have this thing of like, you really feel like you're in somebody's story. Yeah. And that's what I loved. You're really immersed in it. Um, and there was also Uta Hagen, of course. We worked a lot on her, you know, the questions and where, why, how. Mm-hmm. Uh, objectives, we were also very Meisner-orientated, so mm-hmm. objectives and repetition. And just the process of having to write down and having that kind of homework. Right. You know, we had journals for acting and voice, and some teachers wanted you to every night journal what you learned and journal what you discovered. And that was very strange for me because I was like, in France, I feel at least from my experience that I was not asked how and why I was doing something. They just wanted you to do it. And they did not care for an explanation. And if they did not like it, you had to find another way. <laughs> that was just basically it. So there was less uh, opportunity for exploration, I think. They didn't want to hear about you. They just wanted to see a performance. Uh, this is what I enjoyed with Americans. But I definitely wasn't used to that. And it, it felt very intrusive at first of having to explain why I felt that way on stage and mm-hmm. what had come to mind to create that. I was a little bit like, well, none of your business. But um, I got over that, and that really helped me pull down the walls that I had naturally built as a performer as well. And it's fantastic because you really got to see both ends of that spectrum, and you really, you know, all these different strategies and techniques and philosophies, and you get to have them all in your in your bag of tricks, which which can only help, I'm sure. Definitely, yeah. And so... Um, so you do the two years at, at, at American Academy and, um, and I believe I'm not mistaken that, you know, they don't really want you doing any outside work while you're there, right? No, I was only allowed to work as per visa requirements, uh, 20 hours on campus. No, but what what I mean is, um... Well, that's the visa part, but I'm saying the school itself, I believe, doesn't want their students, like, auditioning and things like that outside of the school while they're there, right? No, definitely not. That also I was quite surprised by, because in France we were more or less encouraged, and there was kind of like a casting director in the school itself for the students, whereas here, most schools that I, you know, applied for and auditioned for, they always said, when attending, you're not allowed to go and audition. Gotcha. Right. Yeah, that seems to be pretty common with conservatories here. Um, 
So, anything else specific that you really got out of your time at, at ADA? Um, anything else specific that I got out of my time at ADA? I mean, I discovered a new passion for Shakespeare, which was amazing. Oh, great. Yeah, I never thought that in the U.S., being, you know, growing up so close to London, I thought, I never thought that the U.S. would be what would ignite such a, you know, a love of Shakespeare for me, but really, I performed Joan of Arc for a graduation series uh, in second year, so my last year, and that Joan of Arc per- part has kind of stuck to me, because it's also the role that got me into Ada. It was one of my monologues. Right. So it kind of came full circle, and it was really like it was really fun for me, and I was quite proud of that of getting because we of course had to audition for those parts as well for the graduation series. So getting to play my Frenchness uh, on an American stage was very enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also the attention to detail and to objectives and to the language in Shakespeare, and that's that's something we were taught at Ada. That's something I really enjoyed, both as an actor and as a linguist, of course. That's a, I did have these tools as a linguist that a lot of people didn't have because Elizabethan language did not seem foreign to me. Exactly. So again, it, it can only help. That's great. So yeah, let's talk about Joan of Arc a little bit because uh, I believe you told me you've done it a few different times now, right? Yes. Uh, so obviously, you know, people know in general who she was, but but, you know, tell, tell us a little more about her and about how she's written in the play. And also, you know, because it's hard to play a historical figure, I would think, um, because you don't want to play a stereotype or a caricature. You want to make her a really real person. Yeah, definitely. Especially Joan of Arc, because she's so mythical. You know, she, she is a mythical creature, and she's a part of Christian mythology, and some people genuinely believe in that, and genuinely believe she is one of the saints, and right. was directly spoken to by the Virgin Mary. So there's you're crossing a lot of people's borders here, you know, both mm-hmm. religious and also the whole virginity thing. Yeah. Um, but historically speaking, what we do know about her is that she did lead the Battle of Orléans, and she did regain Orléans for the Dauphin Charles in France against England, and this woman, well, this young woman, I mean, she was about 18 years old, I think, she was illiterate. Right. And she walked all the way from Dauphine to, um, uh, to, I believe, Orléans, or a city like that. She walked all the way on her own at 18 years old to meet the Dauphin and convinced him that she was sent by God and she could lead him to victory, which she did for a while. And she never actually participated in battle, according to what I read. She never fought, because we often see her, you know, represented as a warrior with a sword and such. She apparently never fought. She was wounded, but she never fought. She orchestrated uh, the battle. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all the strategies and such. So it's kind of, like, mind-boggling to me, regardless of her being a saint or not. It's just mind-boggling to think of an illiterate 18-year-old countryside girl uh, leading an entire army to victory. So that is fascinating. Yeah. And also her steadfast belief. She really did believe she was sent by God, and she really did believe she could fight off the English and win. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, she was... You know, they think she died at 19. Now, she was burned at the stake. And she had a whole, uh, you know, she had a um, trial. And she was accused of many things. And the biggest, mind you, the biggest uh, accusation she was facing was not heresy. 
or war crime. It was actually dressing up as a man. Ah. That was the, you know, the heaviest kind of accusation she was facing. And I find that fascinating. It is. And now legend has it that apparently she was given the chance to retract and to dress in women's clothes and to say, no, I lied. I'm a heretic, et cetera, et cetera. And apparently she did retract and dressed mm-hmm. up as a woman. But for fear of being raped while incarcerated while wearing women's clothes, Oof. she decided to redress as a man. Yeah. Now that's legend has it. You know, it's not exactly proven. But we know that during the trial, she actually retracted for a minute. Sure. Uh, every, well, I mean, she was terrified. She's 19 years old or so. Yeah. And she'd been betrayed by her own country because she was captured by... Uh, the Duke of Burgundy give it, uh, she was captured by the Duke of Burgundy and given to the English. Mm-hmm. Burgundy being the French region, of course. Yep. Where we have, you know, terrific wine. Yeah, yes. But apart from that, I think that the whole path that she followed is just very inspiring. Now, there is the side that kind of bothers me with the whole extremist religious part of it. Mm-hmm. But that's what I also love about Shakespeare, especially the retraction part, because Shakespeare writes her as this stunningly intelligent person, even though he was not a fan of the French, and he often mocks the French. I mean, that was, you know, the history between France and England. But she does have at the very last part a moment where it's very hard to interpret because what is she saying? Suddenly she's like, they're like, well, take her to die. And she's like, no, 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 wait, I'm pregnant. And it's like, what the fuck? Like, you've been saying to everybody you're a virgin for the past two hours and suddenly you're pregnant? Yeah. And they're like, so who's the father? And she's like, oh, it's this guy. No, 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 wait, it's this guy. It's this guy. It's like she suddenly has this very teenage moment of being like, no, I'm scared. Right. Don't kill me. So she lies. Well, I think that was my interpretation of it and how I was directed, right? She's not actually pregnant. Mm-hmm. She is a virgin and et cetera, et cetera. But basically, at the end, she still has the courage and the strength and she curses them forever and she's taken to be burned at the stake. But I, I do like that moment. Uh, I don't know how to say it, but I like that moment that Shakespeare gives her, that true innocence and that true fear that she never showed before. So it kind of humanized her in a way for me. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, again, it sounds like an incredibly rich role to get to play, number one. And, you know, again, what I said before about not wanting to play a, a caricature, I mean, there's so much in what you said that's, you know, that's incredibly human and, and all kinds of things you, to, uh, to work with. So, uh, clearly she, uh, you know, it's not some, uh, some historical archetype or something. So that's, uh, that's, that's really great. Very cool. And the language, of course, was also my favorite part because she speaks, she, she speaks like a saint, though. She speaks like a prophet and in the way that the prophet speaks. Every word she says is poetry. You know, and every word is chosen up until that very last part where she's like, wait, no, I'm pregnant. You know, that's where she kind of loses it. But the I am in general that she uses is perfect iambic pentameter. Yep. Which we often, you know, give to people who are saintly and all knowing and omniscient and omnipotent, of course. Right. Amazing. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, Cool. So, uh, and then when was it that you graduated from, Anna? April 2018, so a year and a month ago, actually. So it's been a little over a year for you now. Um, so, you know, what, what what happened after you graduated? I mean, obviously, I guess you started auditioning and, 
you know, what was the first, uh, you know, first thing you got to do or what, what was the first thing that happened to you after that? So I had to wait a while for my optional practical training card to arrive. So I was only allowed to start working in June. Oh, okay. So I was kind of like patiently waiting for it and just, you really aren't allowed to do anything. That's that's insane. You can't work a regular job. You can't audition. That's, that's nuts, man. That's really, wow. Not even unpaid work. So, you know, as soon as I got the card, it was like, bam, audition, audition, audition. Yeah. And I got this uh, during the summer, if I was a little later, I did other things before that, but I got this really cool part in a performance piece for the Queen's Museum, the Queen's International 2018, their big uh, opening, their big opening for the season. And we had this, you know, performance of basically the Odyssey called Rosie Crimson. And there was about a thousand people in attendance. And we were wandering about the Queen's Museum, reciting pieces of the Odyssey and applying movement to that book. It's a bit weird, I won't lie, you know, with performance pieces, and it's always a little strange, immersive theater especially, but that was definitely a lot of fun, and it's opened up to a lot of other opportunities, and I met amazing artists through it, and amazing actors as well. No, it's very cool, and it's and it's it's becoming pretty pretty in these days, especially in a place like New York, so that's great. Definitely. Um, very cool. And then... Uh, so, you know, how, have, I mean, besides that, how have you found, you know, the whole, we mentioned a little of this earlier, but in general, the whole, the whole process of auditioning. I mean, it's, it's weird because you start getting a little used to it. You, you recognize so many, I mean, New York is such a huge city, and yet every time I go to an audition, I meet someone I know. Yeah. And I can know them for X and Y reason, having worked with them, having just met them in audition rooms, having gone to school with them, you know. Right. Um, but it's, uh, it's nice. I've started to establish a pretty good relationship with certain casting directors. And just like I was taught at ADA, they always said, you know, it's not about getting the part, it's about getting into the room mm-hmm. and giving a good impression. And something I work really hard on is, you know, to do the best I can as an actor. Yeah. And whether or not I get the part is no consequence on my talent, so to speak. Now, it's always hard, you know, for your ego. You want the part, you really do. But I try to tell myself that as well. Just to, you know... Uh, not get disappointed too much because the rejection does become a lot, and I'm sure you understand that too. Yeah, of course. Um, but that brings up a good point, which is you know, with all the training you've had now uh, for for you know about ten years or so total, um, you know, what are some of yours? And I, I know I'm you know I'm sure it's a little different with every part, but you know, in general, when you're handed a script or you're you have to look at something to read for an audition. What are some of your techniques and strategies uh, from your training or just that you've discovered on your own? You know, what are some of your specific approaches technically, um, you know, to, to preparing uh, a script? So the first thing I like to do is reread whatever the sides or, you know, the extracts over and over again because I tend to, you know, I read very quickly and I'm used to reading a lot because it's also my university studies. So I force myself to pay attention because it's just so easy to look over and think like, oh, it's five lines, right? I'm fine. And then I like to learn my first line and my last line by heart. Mm. Because it's not usually specified that you have to learn everything by heart and I prefer to always have text in hand anyway because I know that with nerves I'm going to forget stuff. So it's just be very secure on the first and the last line. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
I also, um, I like to read what is said to me. Mm-hmm. And then I like to give myself a, what am I doing? You know, beat changes and then give myself a verb, a well, an action of what am I trying to do and a specific action. What am I trying to get from that person? But it's always hard because you, the casting director might have a totally different idea of what you, of what they wanted. Of, it, well, of that text. So I also try to give myself the freedom of being like, hey, I'm going to make a decision. I'm going to bring something. And then if they don't like it, they can correct me. And I'm going to try to adapt to them. It's really hard to find that balance between, you know, like actually making a decision, but also fitting it to what they want from you. Well, I, if I'm not mistaken, you know, generally the common wisdom is that, you know, first of all, they want you to make choices. So you go in there with For your sure. old choices, that that is a plus. And then, you know, they may give you an adjustment. So, you know, the ability to, sure. so they want to see your ability to make choices and your ability to adjust to direction. So, um, you know, obviously, I, you know, I suppose there are some casting directors who might do this, but I would say in general, you know, going in with, you know, they know you can't read their mind. So if you happen to go in with something that's not what they were thinking, they can't really blame you for that, right? I mean. Oh, no, definitely not. No, no, no. It's like, it's also my overly wanting to please kind of sure. side that I have to brush off as well. And I, I know a lot of other actors who are like that, you know. And I have an amazing uh, on-camera teacher who always said, don't think about what they're thinking. That is like the last thing they want. They don't care. They just want to see somebody make a decision and make an interesting choice. Right. You know, not so just some kind of like copy, uh, you know cookie cutter idea of a character you really need to make it yours and that's something i still struggle with on camera i won't mind it's hard for everybody um oh, for sure, yeah. you know and i should mention for the listeners if you go back uh actually the very first episode of this podcast is with a casting director it just kind of happened that way uh her name is mm. malkin and she gave a terrific interview so you can check that out and i hope to have more casting directors and people like that on at some point so uh, hopefully i'll be able to have more of them on but anyway um so uh let me ask you this about training in general because i've always been fascinated by training it's one of my favorite subtopics of this podcast one of the reasons being that I didn't have much training when I was an actor, and uh, mm-hmm. I know it hurt me for sure. Um, and uh, I'm curious for someone like you, especially who's had so much training, um, do you think, and this is a this might be a weird question, but do you think, because now, for me, if I were still trying to be an actor myself, I would be very self-conscious about the fact I don't have much training. And I would be afraid or feel like I don't know what I'm doing and people can tell. And so do you think from your perspective as someone who's very trained that if you get put in, the, in, in something, working with an actor who isn't very trained, who doesn't have a lot of formal training or maybe much of any, do you think you can tell that? Do you think working with them you know, you, you can get that sense that they're not on the level with you just in terms of training and technique, or, you know, does that not come into play when you're actually just working with somebody? I mean, when I'm working with people, I don't tend to pay attention to their credentials, you know, and uh, I just want somebody that's on time for rehearsals, that's like a big thing, because I, I cannot even fathom how many people are not on time yeah. for rehearsals, it's unbelievable, 
the lack of professionalism, but I don't think that should come with training. Training is a plus mm-hmm. on that level, though, because you you know it's, conservatories are very strict for that reason. Sure. Um, no, I don't. I mean, there are places where it's like kind of obvious, like on stage without vocal training. That's yeah, you can tell that somebody hasn't received training sure. because eventually they're going to hurt their voice right. after you know three or four rehearsals. Uh, right. Same thing when it goes with Shakespeare. Right. Um, but I've actually seen a lot of actors do Shakespeare, for example, and they weren't training Shakespeare, and they brought something that was so cool and so different and such a different dimension because they were not trying to stick to a set of rules that was on a paper that they had to learn back in college or at the conservatory. Right. So I don't think people should feel self-conscious about that. Uh, I, I do think that you should get as much training as possible if you can. Yeah. But there is the thing that training is expensive. And it's also that you have to have the time to dedicate your life to the time and the privilege to de- dedicate your life to studies that might not give you a working job afterwards. You know, a like paying job, so to speak. Yep. yep. So it's definitely a privilege for me. Yeah. And again, right or wrong, uh, again, casting directors and people like that, they also do see it as important. Most of them will say, oh, yeah, I want to see I want to see training on your resume. Um, cool. Um, well, definitely. There's a part of me that also gets annoyed because you always hear, like, oh, well, I'm a good liar, so I'm a good actor. Like, right. I mean, that is just so offensive on so many levels. It's like you, you want your doctor to have gone to medical school. Right, 100%. so you would want an actor to have gone to acting school as well. Yes. Can you apply that to it? You know, direct? No, it's not. But I do specifically think, as a theater trained actor as well, that yes, that is required. No, again, this is exactly what I'm talking about. I, I completely agree, and it's something I didn't realize at all when I was younger. You know, and that's why it's it is taken so seriously in so many places now. You know, we watch so much TV and movies and that kind of content that. You know, it looks like just people talking casually. It looks very simple and easy, but the reality is that these actors are working extremely hard to make it look easy. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, uh, anything else exciting you're working on at this point? Uh, definitely. I have, well, that's pre-production and it's really not quite settled yet, but through the Queens Museum performance I did where I met this great artist, Kim Hokley, who made that whole performance happen, she introduced me to one of her friends, who's a professor at Parsons and who is an artist and is writing a performance piece around Antigone. Oh, and around the rights of burial and how do we, you know, explain death for many refugees, particularly South American refugees in the U.S. That's that's amazing, and that's that's really uh that that's full circle for you with the Antigone thing. Wow! I know, and it's also helped. She wants to hire me for a whole year, so that's also helpful to my visa case, you know. And uh, fantastic! I'm very very yeah, I'm very thankful to Kim for that, and also the project in itself is so interesting. So she approached me at first because of my linguistic background and my you know training in movement and performance pieces. Um, thanks to recommendation of Kim, of course, and. So as an actor, and wanting to create this group of women uh, who project uh, written scripts and things like that, and he talked about burial and how do we recognize our dead and how do we... I mean, it seems like it's going to be a beautiful project. She's still in the process of writing it. Sure. It's called Only Remains Remain, and she's gotten, you know, she's gotten funding and things like that, so it's well on its way. And I'm very excited because it gets to be a little bit more theater. 
So yeah, sounds fantastic. And I'm sorry, did you say that we do know when it's going to go up, or we don't know yet? No, we don't know yet. So the funding is there, but the question is when is it and where is it being performed? It has to be performed in Queens because she got money from Queens or something. I can't remember exactly. Uh, by the end of 2019. Mm-hmm. But she also then wants to bring it through to 2020 and such. So it's very much happening, but then there's all like, you know, casting and writing and things that go. But I'm kind of her uh, production assistant slash performer for that. That's so phenomenal. And um, is there any information out? Is there anywhere we can send people where they can just at least, you know, see some information about it and, and you know, know where to go to find out more when when it's happening or there's nothing like that out there yet? Not quite yet because we're starting a Kickstarter soon. Oh, great. I believe. And start casting as well. I think as soon as casting is done, really, that's when it's going to start getting out there. Because, you know, it's hard to put on a project if you don't have any names to put by the side of it, of course. Of course. Well, as it gets closer, we'll have you and perhaps her, you know, on the show if you guys want. And you can talk more about it and let people know about it. Um, Oh, definitely. Thank you. Of course. So that sounds great. And like you said, a a big plus for you uh, with your, you know, what you're trying to do. So that's great. Um, So if everything goes the way you want it to, what's your, like, ideal trajectory? Like over the next year or two years or whatever it is. You know, what, what do you want to happen for, for your career? What's your, what's your ideal scenario? Really what I want is, well, let's say God-given gift. I get the visa. Yeah. I get to stay in the U.S. I want to, you know, get SAG-AFTRA. Yeah. I would like to get unionized. And I would like to get representation as well for TV, film, commercial. Because I really think that that's what's becoming difficult is, you know, people don't want to find you if they don't know how long you're going to be in the country, which is, of course, completely understandable. Yeah. You know, so getting representation, getting SAG-AFTRA, and working on interesting shows, um, hopefully, because I know I can't do theater in the country because I can't be equity. Mm-hmm. So I've uh, really turned my interest towards film and specifically TV, you know, Hulu, Netflix, HBO, all these shows. If I could just get an under five on these amazing shows that I want, you know, that we all binge watch so much and they're countless. I couldn't even possibly name them right now. Oh my God. But yeah. It's working steadily to getting, uh, working to steadily getting paid better and better and just become a working actor, you know, in the American sense, a working actor. So, and forgive me for being naive, but I want to, explore something you just said so you can't be equity you said that's because you're not technically a regular american citizen yeah i am not a citizen or i would have to apply for a green card so right. to, to join equity sag doesn't have that restriction Got it. Uh, i already have a voucher from them right so like they don't necessarily care as much as long as you are have a work permit of course <laughs> they'll it. hire you if they deem you good enough Got it. Um, so, you know, we, we've covered a lot of this, but is there any other particular advice you would give international people who are thinking about coming to New York to pursue something in the art or coming to anywhere in America, I should say, um, to pursue something artistic? Yeah. Well, I mean, this is going to sound so obvious and cliche and everybody's always said it, but you have to really want it. Yeah. Like, 
I am still shocked in seeing that certain people who came here and they're just giving up and going home because it's too hard, which, I mean, if you're doing that for financial reasons, that's completely fair. Right. Like, if we're not out privileged like I am to have help and find means, you know, of finding money to pay for the visas and things like that, but it's definitely a commitment that is, like, nowhere else because the United States is, an, is a great country on many levels. But there aren't the same privileges as we have back in the EU, at least. Yeah. You know, life is more expensive and it's more, it's harder and you have to push harder for what you want. And there's just more people. So naturally there's more competition, you know, there's more people. Yeah. So I really think that you shouldn't be scared of all the requirements that are asked. I remember even applying for my student visa when there was no reason for me not to get it. But even applying for that was super daunting. Mm -hmm. There's so many things involved. Yeah. But you just have to take it step by step and really be sure of what you want. Yeah, and I don't I don't think it's, you know, cliche or, or obvious necessarily at all because you know, and this goes for, for anybody trying to do acting, but especially, you know, internationally like you said, you know, people may not realize, often don't realize how hard it is. I mean the true amount of hard work and action mm -hmm. and, and discipline and sacrifice and everything else that's involved. Like it is not, it is really, truly not easy. So, um, you're at, I, I agree with you about, you have to act really, you have to really want it. Yes, absolutely. You know, I, I had to admit for myself that while I love, you know, being sort of peripherally in this world, I didn't have what it took to, to really be an actor, or at least I wasn't truly motivated to do the real work of it. And I had to, uh, you know, I had to accept that for myself. Um, so Yeah, I definitely agree with you on that level. I mean, you mentioned that when we first met, and I thought that was really interesting because I'd never think of what it takes to be an actor, but the talent-wise. See, I don't see myself as talented, really. Um, I think there's so many things I need to work on, but I do think I want it more than other people. Well, that makes sense. you know, and this, you talk, you know, this is another thing that's going to sound cliche, but I really do think it's true. Um, you know, especially in something like acting, persistence and hard work and things like that uh, will often be more powerful than, than just you know, quote unquote talent, whatever, whatever mm -hmm. talent even means. But yeah, you know, it's, it's like anything else, the, the hard work, the persistence, you know, not giving up, uh, all that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, like I meet a lot of, yeah. Oh no, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. Well, I meet a lot of people, uh, whether they're in the industry or not, they're always like, do you think you're good? Do you think you're talented? I'm like, I don't really know, but I really want to be a part of this project, so let me. You know? <laughs> um, I try not to think too much about it, because sometimes I look up at my reel and short films I did and things like that, and I'm like, oh my god, that was so bad. But like, the more you do that, the less, the, the less far you're going to go. Yeah, and you can drive yourself crazy, and Oh my God, yeah. Even that casting director, Laurie Malkin, was saying that a huge part of it for her is, are you reliable? You know, like you mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. on time and so forth. Are you going to work hard and be dedicated? And are you, are you good to work with? Are you a good person, you know, to be around and work with? So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
Well, it's very inspiring, Joy, and you're, you're on a you're on a very challenging journey, but it sounds like you're you're killing it, which is which is great. Um, well, thank you so much. Yeah, of course. I really wish you you know all the luck and success, and I really hope everything works out the way you want it to. Um, is there anything else you'd like to mention or talk about before we start to wrap up here? Uh, no, not really. Uh, I just want to thank you for doing this podcast. I think it's super interesting, and it's rare that we have the opportunity to get an insight into actors' lives and, you know, non-famous actors' lives, but, like, working actors or, like, me trying to be working actors, you know. Um, and so thanks for taking the opportunity of, you know, giving us the opportunity, rather, to talk to you when we're just, you know, nobody's in quotations. So it's really nice. No, no. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. That's That's the whole idea. Um, so, and you're not nobody's, um, no, no, I know, but you know what I mean. I know what you mean. Yeah. Um, so do you have any other, uh, personal social media you want to share a website or Instagram or anything like that or no? I just put up my website actually. Great. So don't worry. You won't have to type out my last name because that one's hard. (laughs) Um, and they're very simple. Yeah. Uh, cool. And again, we'll post, uh, all the links in the episode. So we'll post that. We'll post the link to that, um, immigration law resource you mentioned earlier. What was that called again? Law pack or something? Visa pack. Visa pack. Okay. And we'll, we'll post that. Um, great. So you did your website. Congratulations. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Um, all right, very cool. Well, Joy, this has been a great conversation. And again, I, I wish you all the success in the world with everything. Um, and uh, obviously, people can check out your website. And um, maybe we'll have you back uh, when that other project is coming up. And uh, if anybody wants to reach me about the podcast for any reason, you can do so at Craft Business Life Podcast. That's all one word, Craft Business Life Podcast at gmail.com. And uh, until next time, thank you. Bye. Thank you so much.